Hi, I'm Carrie Compton, and you're listening to Princeton Alumni Weekly's podcast. The Equal Rights Amendment originated in the age of suffrage, but it has yet to be ratified. It is short but profound. Equality of rights under law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Today, I'm speaking with Linda Terry Coberly, class of 1989, a Chicago-based attorney with Winston and Strawn, who serves as the chair of the ERA Coalition's legal task force. In 1972, both houses of Congress passed the ERA, and 22 states quickly moved to ratify it. In the face of conservative opposition, however, ratification slowed, and in 1982, when the deadline for ratification had arrived after one extension, the amendment was short by three out of the 38 states needed. Since 2017, a new push for passage of the ERA has seen Nevada and Illinois both ratify the amendment in spite of the deadline, leaving just one more state needed to meet the threshold. Now, advocates like Coberly, along with a bipartisan group of lawmakers on Capitol Hill, are working to ensure the amendment will be added to the Constitution once the final state ratifies it. Linda, thanks so much for joining me today. Good morning. I'm very happy to be with you. Linda, tell us about the ERA Coalition's legal task force, and when did you get involved? So the ERA Coalition is an organization that exists to advocate for constitutional protection for women, and it is an organization that's been around for a little while and advocates both for a federal ERA and for state ERAs. A lot of people don't realize that many states have their own equal rights amendments in their state constitutions, and the ERA Coalition works toward ratification of ERAs in states as well. Um, I got involved with the ERA Coalition following work that I and my firm did on the Equal Rights Amendment here in Illinois. I'm from Chicago, Mm -hmm. and uh, you may know that the ERA died in Illinois in 1982, um, Mm -hmm. or or I'd rather not say died because it isn't over yet Mm -hmm. and we have more work to do, but that was really the end of the road in the initial effort to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, I personally got involved through my law firm. Um, I'm a a partner at Winston & Strawn in Chicago, which is a very old firm here in the city, and our chairman actually heard a story on NPR a couple of years ago about the Equal Rights Amendment ratification effort in Nevada and was very surprised to hear that Nevada had ratified after decades of inactivity on uh, by legislatures on the Equal Rights Amendment. Mm. And he actually called me to his office and he said, I need to talk to you about the Equal Rights Amendment, which I must say I found a surprising topic that morning <laughs> in his office. But he said, we really should get involved in this because Illinois hasn't ratified yet. So we convened a group of lawyers at our firm to work on ratification, beginning with understanding what the status was. And then we got involved with the grassroots efforts that were working in Illinois to to advance ratification. And we did a number of things to help educate people about what it is mm-hmm. and about what the legal issues are, because we found that, at least from our perspective at that time in this state, there weren't very many people doing the legal work to analyze and educate about 
what impact the ERA could have and what the issues were related to ratification at this time. I was just thrilled uh, when uh, the Equal Rights Amendment was ratified in Illinois last year. So since then, we've been working with our colleagues in at my firm in North Carolina on the uh, effort to ratify there, with our colleagues in Washington, D.C. on the effort to ratify in Virginia. And as a result of my work uh, and my testimony, actually, I got a call from the National ERA Coalition. Mm who had been watching all of this very closely and was involved behind the scenes. And they invited me to get involved in the National Coalition. Our firm actually joined as one of the lead organizations uh, for the coalition, and I was asked to be the head of the legal task force. And the function of the legal task force is to bring together some of the best constitutional uh, scholars around and to talk about what kinds of issues might come up to answer questions, to analyze legal strategy, uh, and the constitutionality of a ratification at this time. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the members of the coalition task force include Catherine McKinnon, um, who is actually a law professor of mine uh, mm-hmm. and a very prominent scholar in feminist theory, and uh, Kathleen Sullivan, who is the dean of Stanford Law mm-hmm. School, and Erwin Chemerinsky, who literally wrote the book on federal procedure and federal courts and is a very prominent constitutional scholar, along with a number of other people, including Jessica Neuwirth, who was a very important part of the ratification effort in the 70s. So what we do is convene conversation, mm-hmm. raise questions. We've done some uh, written pieces to talk about the legal issues. Right. Now, you mentioned states have separate ERAs. How many states do? That's an excellent question, and I don't know off the top of my head. What I can tell you is that Illinois did have a state ERA and had a state ERA in place dating back to the ratification of its own constitution, which is actually pretty recent in the 70s. And yet, Illinois didn't ratify the federal ERA when it had the opportunity uh, in the 70s and early 80s. And I think one of the reasons was that the, the issue became quite politicized. There was actually kind of a rush by states across the nation to ratify as soon as Congress actually approved and and sent the ERA Mm -hmm. for ratification to the states, and that was in 1972. Mm -hmm. So 22 states ratified very quickly. And then the opposition was more mobilized and led by Phyllis Schlafly. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Illinois, it became, by the end of the 70s, a very hot issue. It was still at a time when it was somewhat controversial for women to be in the workforce. Mm. So some of the talking points against the ERA in the 70s and early 80s don't even make sense anymore um, based on where we are as a culture. And that's one of the challenges, I think, for us today is to think about the ERA in a contemporary context. And are there any contemporary opposition voices at this point? There are. It's a small group. Studies done by the ERA coalition show that the overwhelming majority of Americans think that there should be a constitutional equality guarantee. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, many people think it already exists. 
and they're just not well informed wow. about that topic. There is some opposition today. Some of the opposition actually attempts to pull the talking points from the Phyllis Schlafly era into today. And for example, you hear sometimes opponents of the ERA, who again are a distinct uh, sm and small minority, talking about how passing the ERA would eliminate protections for women that exist in the law today. Mm -hmm. And that's similar to talking points that were used in the 70s and early 80s, and it's just not true. Okay. So walk us through what was going on with the ERA between 1982 and 2017. Do you have any inclination about what spurred Nevada to kind of reinvigorate this whole matter? Well, I do. And I think one thing to, to remember is that this actually has been going on all this time. Okay. So it's n not as if the effort to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment came completely out of the blue. Mm -hmm. It was just under the radar screen a bit. In many states, including Illinois, a bill was introduced almost every year to ratify for the last 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, at least. And in fact, the uh, proponent, the principal sponsor of the ERA in Illinois was somebody who had continually introduced the ERA for ratification over the years. Hmm. There wasn't a lot of grassroots support. And you know, the, the National ERA Coalition predates 2017 as well. Sure. Um, and so that's an organization that's been working in a lot of different respects to work toward um, constitutional equality. So the, the work has been going on in the federal system. Carolyn Maloney mm -hmm. uh, in Congress has introduced the Equal Rights Amendment anew every year for many, many years. And what's different today is that now she's also the co-sponsor of a bill that would also eliminate the, the deadline that expired in 1992, or 1982 uh, on the Equal Rights Amendment that was introduced in 1972. Mm -hmm. So the, the effort to kind of restart the ERA conversation has been in play in Congress for decades, but the removal of the deadline is kind of a new idea. And that's what was really spurred by what happened in Nevada. In Nevada, State Senator Pat Spearman um, really led the charge to have the Equal Rights Amendment ratified. And I think what really made the difference in 2017 was the Women's March. Mm, interesting. And a new sense after the 2016 election that the gains that have been fought for all this time in terms of gender protection and equality are not secure. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's what really changed the conversation and created the kind of grassroots support that was needed to get the ratification in Nevada and in Illinois. So in Illinois, there had always been a sponsor, but unless you have grassroots support, you know, people calling their legislators, people writing, people doing op-eds and uh, blog posts and, and really kind of pounding the pavement mm -hmm. on the issue, it's just not going to work. And so it was really the, I think, the Women's March that brought together a lot of these disparate organizations and mobilize them to move the conversation forward. There's a bill pending in both the House and the Senate to uh, remove the deadline and eliminate any potential barrier to ratification at this time. The deadline is somewhat arbitrary, isn't that correct? It is. It's actually something that, that is kind of a new phenomenon in the 20th century. The Constitution 
can be amended based on a process described in Article 5. Mm -hmm. And it was that process that led to the adoption of the Bill of Rights, for example. There's nothing in Article 5 of the Constitution that talks about a time limit. The amendments in the early part of our nation's history, including the 14th Amendment, including the anti-slavery amendment, including, you know, a variety of amendments, um, were introduced in Congress and sent to the states for ratification without any deadline. It was, that was not a thing. Mm -hmm. In the 20th century, and, and actually specifically with the Prohibition Amendment, mm. Congress began to look at imposing deadlines mm. on the ratification of amendments. And it was really for political reasons. Mm -hmm. But most of the amendments that were introduced in the 20th century uh, had a deadline of seven years. Mm. And one of the principles in our constitutional system is that a Congress cannot bind future Congresses. Mm. So if the Congress who is sitting today wishes to eliminate that deadline, it can do so. It, it can just repeal the deadline. Okay. And, and that's what we're working toward in the House and the Senate right now. I see now. Okay. So last year, Virginia came pretty close to being the final state. What happened there? And which states are you holding out hope for in the coming year? Well, in Virginia, it was a, it was a very interesting situation. The, the bill for ratification couldn't make it out of committee mm -hmm. because it was blocked by the chair of the committee who was an opponent. Mm. And that's unfortunate because it, it's almost certainly the case that there would have been enough votes in the chamber itself to pass the bill, wow. to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And, and that's partly because, remember, this is actually a bipartisan effort. Sure. And it's only the far right mm -hmm. of the Republican Party that opposes the mm -hmm. Equal Rights Amendment. In, in Nevada and in Illinois, there was, bi there in the end, was bipartisan support mm -hmm. for passing the Equal Rights Amendment. So in Virginia, it was held up by the chair of the relevant committee. And there was actually a procedural vote to bypass, to get the, the bill to the chamber despite the opposition of the chair. Mm -hmm. And that procedural vote failed by one vote. Wow. I think it's very likely that there will be uh, sufficient changes in the Virginia legislature in the upcoming election mm. to lay the groundwork for ratification in Virginia in the beginning of, of 2020. Wow. Um, but there are other states who are close on Virginia's heels. North Carolina is very close and has a, a very well-developed grassroots movement. The National Coalition is involved, but as with all politics, it, it only works if people on the ground in that state really support it. And uh, there's a very active movement in North Carolina to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And in fact, there are active ratification efforts in all of the unratified states, in every single one. Arizona, Florida, even Utah have made moves in favor of ratification, and there are people working on the ground in each of those states. So let's say the final state ratifies. What happens next in well, your imagination? That's a very interesting question. In part, it depends on whether the deadline is still in place. Let's say it is. If it is, then I think there could be litigation. There are some who argue that the 
deadline is not effective to stop the efficacy of an amendment. Hmm. So the Supreme Court has already held that Congress has the power to impose a deadline if it wants to. It can, you know, that's something that it, it can do as part of its work in proposing an amendment to the states. Uh, and it held that back in the 20s. But that's never really been tested. The efficacy of a deadline like that has never really been tested. Mm. And it would seem strange if a statement by Congress in 1972 could stand in the way of an amendment that has been ratified by three-quarters of the states. So that's one thing that could happen. I think another thing that will, will certainly happen is increased efforts and increased momentum uh, relating to the bills that are pending in Congress I see. to remove the deadline. I because see. once three-quarters of the states have expressed a desire to have uh, the amendment be part of the Constitution, I think there would be a tremendous amount of pressure mm -hmm. on Congress to eliminate this barrier, this potential barrier to the effectiveness of the amendment. And if they didn't, would it just sort of float around out there until and Congress would continue to try to remove the deadline? Well, I think it could. And this is why the, the ratification efforts in Congress, the, the effort to get the deadline removed, are important. Because if the deadline isn't removed, then the efficacy of the Equal Rights Amendment would have to be resolved in court. Mm. And that could be a very long process. Mm -hmm. It could go on for years. It's you know, the, the Supreme Court doesn't necessarily take cases the first time. It's something that might need to kick around in a variety of courts mm -hmm. until a disagreement developed and then the Supreme Court would get involved. So it could be a very, very, very long process. Removing the deadline would um, eliminate that fight or could eliminate that fight um, and and would express a, a contemporary view by Congress that this is something that should become part of the Constitution. Now, there might still be a legal fight. Um, some opponents of the of the Equal Rights Amendment might still try to argue that the deadline can't be eliminated retroactively. There were a couple of states, or five actually, who attempted to take back their ratification back in the 1970s. That. Yeah. That's not a thing? It's not a thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So on this issue, we actually have some pretty good historical precedent. Um, the 14th Amendment actually was uh, made part of the Constitution at a time when two of the states that had voted to ratify the 14th Amendment had later tried to take it back. Hmm. And yet everyone agreed, all three branches of the federal government agreed that the 14th Amendment was appropriately ratified, and we all know it's part of the Constitution today. So there's good historical precedent for this, and it makes sense, because a ratification is different than a law mm -hmm. that a legislature adopts, where, that it would have to renew and continue to keep in effect and extend and all that kind of stuff. A ratification is something that happens at a moment in time. Mm. And the question under Article 5 is simply whether the legislature of the state has ratified. Mm -hmm. And so for those five states, the answer to that question is yes. Right. There has been a ratification, and it's not something that can be taken back. Okay. So back to imagining possible outcomes. Let's say the final state ratifies, the deadline is removed. 
What can women expect to come from the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment uh, five, ten years later? Well, the Equal Rights Amendment will do a couple of things that are important. And first of all, just to lay the groundwork, constitutional amendments are different than laws in that they're not designed to have immediate, specific, technical impact. They're broader principles. And the impact of any constitutional amendment is something that's ultimately resolved in in courts Mm -hmm. and in lawmaking. Mm -hmm. So for the Equal Rights Amendment, it would do two important things. One is it would constitutionalize for the very first time an equality principle for the sexes. It would make clear in our governing document, the document that describes our government and the rights we all have vis-a-vis the government, that discrimination on the basis of sex is unlawful. Now, like with any constitutional protection, that's not an unlimited proposition. Mm -hmm. I mean, every constitutional right has limits, even the First Amendment. Um, There are certain things that the government can do to limit people's speech rights. So so the, the same would be true of the constitutional equality principle. But it would provide an additional tool for women and men to challenge discrimination on the basis of sex. Mm. And it would elevate that kind of discrimination to the same level of illegitimacy mm-hmm. that applies to race and discrimination on the basis of religion and that sort of thing. Under the current Supreme Court cases, the 14th Amendment provides some protection against discrimination on the basis of sex, Mm -hmm. but not as much protection as it provides to other kinds of discrimination. Conservative justices, including the late Justice Scalia, believed that the 14th Amendment shouldn't provide any protection on the basis of sex because that's not what people were thinking about when they passed it. Hmm. And that's certainly true, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the 14th Amendment was passed at a time when women didn't even have the right to vote. Right. I'm sure it's true that nobody thought when the 14th Amendment was being passed that it would prevent discrimination on the basis of sex when that was a fundamental part of our <laughs> culture at that time. Right. But that's not how the Constitution works. It's a principle that then is applied in different contexts and settings. And we now know that discrimination on the basis of sex is something that should be treated with the same seriousness. The Equal Rights Amendment would eliminate any argument that the Constitution doesn't really talk about uh, sex discrimination. So for Conservative justices who actually may be interested in rolling back the existing protections Mm -hmm. under the 14th Amendment, the Equal Rights Amendment would put a stop to that. It would also provide an additional tool against discrimination that exists under our current laws, for example, in law enforcement, law enforcement practices, Mm -hmm. the military, Mm -hmm. uh, some kinds of government employment. There are already some protections in the laws and statutes against Mm -hmm. that kind of discrimination, but statutes can be changed pretty easily. And then there's one other very important thing it would do, which is uh, the second clause of the Equal Rights Amendment actually empowers Congress to enact laws that are designed to further the right embodied in the first clause. So the first clause is the one that you've quoted, uh, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. The second clause empowers Congress to do something about that. And that's important because 
right now, most of the time when Congress acts, it acts based on power given to it under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. So Congress has no power other than what the Constitution gives it. All the other powers are reserved to the states. But the Constitution gives Congress the power to legislate in the area of interstate commerce. Mm. And so most of what Congress does is under that power. But sometimes what Congress wants to do and what the political will asks Congress to do goes pretty far beyond the commerce power. And so you sometimes see um, lawsuits that challenge acts of Congress as too far afield from commerce. And that was the case with a law passed by Congress to criminalize female genital mutilation or Mm. circumcision. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a a doctor who was convicted under that statute. And just last year, a federal judge in Michigan held that the federal statute was unconstitutional Mm. because it was not sufficiently connected with the power of Congress under the existing Constitution. Mm. Lots of people think that decision was wrong, Mm -hmm. and we could have a separate conversation about that. But the Equal Rights Amendment would provide an alternative source of power Mm -hmm. for Congress to pass that kind of law. What do you think it says about us as a society that this has been such a protracted battle? It's pretty stunning, isn't it? Yeah. And every Constitution created since World War II has an Equal Rights Amendment in it. I wanted to ask how we stack up against other socially liberal countries. Very poorly. Is that right? Yes. Okay. In fact, the the only ones who don't are countries that we would not describe as as liberal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, I think it's a reflection of the divisiveness of our politics. I also think in some pockets of our culture, there remains a deep-seated view that it's just okay to treat women differently. And so when push comes to shove, the question we face is whether it's time to put those kinds of justifications for discrimination to bed. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, Linda. I really appreciate you making the time for us today. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please go to paw.princeton.edu or subscribe on Apple iTunes. Till next time.